What is the preferred agent? Is it dobutamine? Is it milrinone? It's a huge knowledge gap. I'm typically using these agents on unstable patients. It's often just a big guess. Cost isn't an issue. It was very clinical, but I have a problem with that. Where did that come from? Well, welcome back everyone to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast here as we close out September, look towards the transition to a little bit more fall in October. Overall, a relatively good time of year for many of us. Winter is approaching the fall. Fall foliage, at least in the Northeast here, is really getting going. And lots of things to look forward to in terms of this time of year. It's probably, for the four of us, one of our most favorite times of year in terms of moving towards years and just a good time. Well, we've got an exciting topic for you today in terms of the podcast. We're going to continue to shift away a little bit from COVID and we've done some stuff recently on sepsis, on respiratory failure, some ventilation stuff. We're going to switch to a topic on cardiogenic shock. And I think this is very applicable to all of us, regardless of the setting we practice in. We're very used to using vasopressors, but often what about inotropes? inodilators. There's a little bit more uncomfortability with that in terms of when to initiate, what is the preferred agent, is it dobutamine, is it milrinone? And for the sake of our discussion today, we are going to review a study that was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine comparing milrinone and dobutamine. But before we jump into that, let me bring in the co-host that you know so well here on CCPEM, Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. John Greenwood. Peter, I'll start with you. We're coming here towards the end of September. How are things for you in New Orleans? Well, things are infinitely better than we were last time we spoke. Recovery from Hurricane Ida is moving forward and progressing well, and COVID is going down. So we're in a much better position than we were just a short while ago. That is so great to hear for you and your colleagues in New Orleans. Rob, I think on our last podcast, you were and actually... It seems quite often you're fighting natural disasters and fires out West. How are things going for you this podcast? Yeah, the fires are less of a problem this month and COVID numbers are also declining. And so we're doing pretty well. We're looking forward to the fall and just trying to get those last group of patients vaccinated for COVID. Agreed. And such great news as well for you out on the West Coast. John, we're so close here between Baltimore and Philly. Not sure that the demographics are different, but always interested and excited to hear what's going on north of Baltimore. Philadelphia is great, Mike. It's been an awesome few months. A little bit anxiety provoking just locally for us. We're about to move into a new 700 bed hospital. So we will be having a mass critical care patient move in a few weeks. Over the course of a few hours, we'll be moving somewhere along the lines of 150 critically ill patients from one hospital to another. So kind of preparing for that and thinking about all the things that can go wrong in those few hours. That is a huge move. Congrats on the new facility, but yes, it is anxiety provoking and stressful. And certainly we hope that all goes well. All right, well, let's transition to our education for this podcast. As I mentioned, it's an article that was just published really in the last few weeks in the New England Journal of Medicine. The lead author is Matthew, and it is titled Milrinone as Compared with Dobutamine in the Treatment of Cardiogenic Shock. Rob, I'm going to turn to you first 
for our discussion in this podcast. Set the background. We're used to seeing septic shock on a daily basis. Sometimes cardiogenic shock is a little bit harder to detect and pick up, but let's just say we have that patient that rolls into the ED. They've got that low cardiac output. We're, we're doing our point of care testing. We figure out that they have cardiogenic shock or Perhaps they're admitted to the ICU or even the step down and they have evidence of cardiogenic shock. Set the background for this particular study about inotropes for us. Yeah, Mike, this is a cool little study. I really like this. The background is that cardiogenic shock is defined as a state of low cardiac output that results in clinical and biochemical manifestations of end organ hypoperfusion. And emergency revascularization is considered the standard of care for patients with cardiogenic shock due to acute MI, acute myocardial infarction. However, for the many patients with cardiogenic shock not due to an acute MI, there's really not a bunch of data. There's not much data to guide optimal management. The current literature in this patient population is primarily limited to observational studies. So this is a great addition in terms of a randomized trial. So current management of patients with cardiogenic shock focuses on hemodynamic treatment with pressors, inotropes, and implantable devices like LVADs, impellas, and others. With regard to vasopressors, norepinephrine has emerged as the vasopressor of choice for many, chosen over epinephrine and dopamine in general. In terms of inotropes, pure inotropes, both milrinone and dobutamine are used. And they're primarily chosen based on clinician preference. There's not a lot of data to guide the choice between those two. And milrinone is a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor that increases cardiac inotropy, leucotropy, and peripheral vasodilatation. Dobutamine is a synthetic catecholamine that acts as a beta-1 and beta-2 agonist and increases cardiac output and peripheral vasodilatation. So they have similar actions. And with the exception of pulmonary hypertension, where milrinone is preferred, there's really little comparative data on the use of milrinone and dibutamine in cardiogenic shock. So this is a welcome study. Outstanding, Rob. Love how you set the table for this particular study. John, let me head over to you to talk about well, what really was the objective that these investigators had and give us some information on the study itself. What do we need to be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. So the primary objective that the author set out to do was really to compare milrinone to dobutamine and see if it improved a composite outcome of in-hospital death, resuscitated cardiac arrest, receipt of cardiac transplant, or mechanical circulatory support. They also looked at a couple other outcomes. These are all kind of secondary outcomes that include non-fatal MI, stroke and renal replacement therapy. So bottom line is they were comparing the two drugs head to head to see if one was better than the other. Now, this was, as Rob was saying, really one of the very few randomized double-blind clinical trials that we've had with inotropes head to head. And I think part of the reason why it was taken up by New England Journal, partly because there's just not much out there, and this is a huge knowledge gap. It was performed at a single quaternary cardiac care unit at the University of Ottawa. The patients that were included were 18 years or older, admitted to the cardiac ICU. They had cardiogenic shock as defined by the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography Interventions definition. Some may know this as the SCAI definition of cardiogenic shock. 
they excluded patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, those who are pregnant, or if there was a clinician preference for a specific inotrope. Now, the trial procedures were fairly straightforward, although I will say a little controversial. So the patients were stratified according to left ventricular, right ventricular, or biventricular failure. They were assigned in a one-to-one fashion to receive either milrinone or dobutamine. Now, once randomized, the patients received the medication in a concealed bag at a dose from different stages. So it's kind of tough if you don't know what the medication is to titrate a dose. And so the way they did this with the stage one to five mechanism was effectively went up in incremental doses from the lowest dose. So for dobutamine, for example, 2.5 mics per kilo per minute or milrinone 0.125 mics per kilo per minute. And then escalated in incremental fashion all the way up to stage five, which would be the highest dose for milrinone greater than 0.5 mics per kilo per minute and dobutamine to 10 mics per kilo per minute. The adjustment of these doses was performed in a somewhat blinded fashion and pulmonary artery catheters were permitted, but not mandated, which is interesting as well as kind of some other mechanisms for measuring cardiac output. The primary outcome here was a composite outcome of in-hospital death, resuscitated cardiac arrest, receipt of a heart transplant or some form of mechanical circulatory support, non-fatal MI, stroke, or initiation of renal replacement therapy. So they basically combined all the bad outcomes of shock and said, did any of them happen in either group? Now they did look at some organ operational secondary outcomes, including length of stay in the cardiac ICU, arrhythmias, requiring intervention, duration of inotropic care, and total hospital length of stay. And for statistical analysis, basically the investigators hypothesized that milrinone would result in a 20% lower incidence of the primary outcome. And they did a power calculation that indicated they would need approximately 192 patients to detect this difference. Outstanding, John. That really sets the stage for the study. We're going to transition momentarily to Peter here for the results, but I don't know about you. We look at primary outcomes. This may be the first study in a long while that has just, I've never seen that many components of a composite primary outcome that was, that's kind of impressive there. And I think we'll touch on that under the limitations component. And also just their hypothesis really on such a large difference between milrinone and dibutamine. Be interested to get your thoughts once we all wrap this discussion up on that. All right, Peter. Well, Let's have you review the results. Is there a clear winner, a clear answer? Can I simplify my management by just picking one agent and going with it for these patients with cardiogenic shock? Well, if that were only the case. So here we go. So there were a total of 319 patients. Those were screened, but only 192 were ultimately enrolled. So we're losing over a third of those patients. The baseline characteristics were similar in the milrinone group and the dobutamine group, so not much change between the two. So the presence of coexisting conditions such as elevated blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes, AFib, were similar in both groups. Medical therapy in the first 24 hours, which includes the use of beta blockers, was similar between the two groups. So overall, 10 patients had an intraaortic balloon pump and 23 patients had a pulmonary artery catheter. The medium serum lactate was 2.9 millimolar. 
in the milrinone group and 2.9 millimolar in the dobutamine group. So they were equivalent for lactate. Now the primary outcome, all that laundry list that we talked about before, all the evilness occurred 54% of the time in the dobutamine group. And in the milrinone group, it occurred 49% of the time. The relative risk was 0.90. And the 95% confidence intervals 0.69 to 1.19 with a p-value of 0.47. There was no effect on the pre-specified subgroups, including the affected ventricle or the concomitant use of vasopressors. So that didn't make a difference. So looking at our secondary outcomes, there was no difference in the individual components of the composite primary outcome. There was no difference in the total duration of inotropic support, no difference in hospital and ICU length of stays. There was no difference in arrhythmias or dysrhythmias that required any type of intervention. And lastly, there was no difference in either heart rate, mean arterial blood pressure, serum lactate, creatinine, or urine output. So there you have it for our results. All right. So in very important results, as both Rob and John alluded to, this is one of those first trials or one of just a very small number of trials that have looked at these two agents in a randomized double-blind fashion. Now, before we go to each of you for your thoughts, your synthesis of this information, how you incorporate it into your current practice, just highlighting here a few limitations. So not surprisingly, this was done at a single center in Ottawa, Canada. So therefore, we would need to specifically look at the generalizability of those patients to each of our current practice setting. You know, at the end of the day, there's still a small number of patients, 192 included in this trial. And I think something that made John was alluding to under study design, these dose adjustments going from stage one to stage five, there wasn't specifically a study protocol that guided the clinician on how to titrate up through those stages. It was based upon physician preference. And this particular study in and of itself did focus on in-hospital outcomes. So could there be a difference in 30-day, 90-day clinical outcomes? Perhaps. And then when we look once again at the power calculations based upon what they hypothesized to be a 20% difference in those primary or composite outcomes between milrinone and dibutamine in favor of milrinone, it's worth thinking a little bit more critically about if that hypothesis is accurate between those two. So those are just some of the limitations that the authors point out and just a few others that I've taken a look at in this particular study. But now we need to get to where the rubber meets the road take that down to the bedside in the emergency department, take it to the bedside in the ICU and patients with cardiogenic shock. John, let me go to you first, incorporating this latest evidence. Do you have a preferred inotropic agent or inodilator? And in doing so, how does this study start to impact or affect your clinical practice? I think you tend to see it most out of the four of us with respect to in the cardiac ICU. So very interested in yours and Rob and Peter's thoughts. Yeah, Mike. So I don't have a preferred inodilator. It very much is patient specific. I kind of take in my pretest probability based on understanding what's going on with the patient that a certain mechanism will work. And you mentioned something that I thought was really important in the limitations, in that the dose adjustments were based on physician judgment. And when this trial came out, I contacted one of the authors and asked them, you know, what does that mean? 
And they basically said that it was a, based on a timed assessment of perfusion markers. So using lactate, SCVO2, urine output, blood pressure, that they would make these changes. So it was very clinical, but I have a problem with that because, so when we prescribe vasopressors, right? You have a patient who's septic with a map of 50. What are we titrating to, right? First, initially, I think we're all titrating to mean arterial pressure and we measure that endpoint. But inotropes are a little bit different, right? They're generally targeting cardiac output. And so if you're not measuring that, maybe not by pulmonary artery catheter, like I think that's kind of a secondary thing for really confounded or escalating shock, but using something like an A-line to indirectly calculate your cardiac output or an echo or ultrasound to calculate that way. If you don't have a direct endpoint or target to titrate your therapy to, I find it hard to make reasonable titrations And so I don't know what to take away from this. It didn't change my practice at all, but certainly I think that there's still a lot of questions that remain, although I understand there's not that much data out there. So they congratulate the authors that they put this together. In fact, one other side note before I let go of the microphone, this is actually part of their residency and fellowship program that this trial was done. It was a bunch of residents and fellows that put this all together. So that's pretty cool. But with that being said, I think there are some pretty significant limitations here. Thanks so much, John. As an aside, you can always have the microphone. Just jump in and steal the stage. All three of you have such insightful points. So well done there. Rob, let me transition to you. Your thoughts on this particular trial. Do you have a preference over either one of these inodilators and any pearls for the bedside clinician? Yeah, so I really like this study. It's a very real world type study other than that limitation that John alluded to in terms of not measuring cardiac output, I would say that like when I'm attending in the unit, we don't do continuous cardiac output in general measurements. And so I don't see that as great a limitation. So I think it was very real world type study. Before this study, I'd say that I typically used dobutamine more than milrinone. And what this study brings to me is the fact that maybe I can use milrinone. It might start using milrinone a bit more than I used to. The specific times that I have in the past used milrinone is when I have a patient who's pretty acidemic and I have concerns that their calcolamine-based receptor of dobutamine is not working very well in the acid environment. So I've typically turned to milrinone in those types of cases. Now I might turn to milrinone a little bit more often since it was at least equivalent. One little secret about these trials and the effect sizes, they targeted an effect size of 20%. And you kind of question, where did that come from? Why would they posit that milrinone would have a 20% greater effect size? And the little known secret is in doing these trials and various investigations is a lot of times you just come up with that number. You would like to think that you have a lot of evidence to come up with that effect size number, but in reality, it's often just a big guess. And often, to be honest, the effect size is chosen in terms of how many patients you think you're going to be able to get. It's really supposed to be in a purist sense, when you're doing an investigation like this, you're supposed to use background evidence, past studies, 
pilot data to determine your reasonable effect size. And you're supposed to choose that first and then get your sample size. But in reality, I talked about this point with a number of investigators across the country in different settings and a number of epidemiologists, biostatisticians, and they all say, yeah, that's the little known secret is that we really kind of do it backhanded. We often look at, well, how many patients do we think we're going to be able to recruit in such a trial? And then we go to the effect size. So that's a little bit of a secret in terms of that. So overall, I would say that this study makes me more open to using melrinone. I haven't used it as much in the past. And yeah, that's my view. Love that secret pearl, Rob. It gives us great insight into taking a look at some of these studies. Not my studies, by the way. Never, 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 (laughs) never. Of the four of us, I think you all do wonderful research. I think you tend to be a little bit more prolific in your editorial role. I think in GEM, you've got great insight to a lot of that. Thank you. All right. Well, Dr. W, bring us home. Yeah, let me bring up a few things that haven't been discussed because I like all the points, particularly the ones that John and Rob brought up. But here's a few other things. They started off by saying that, you know, this choice between dobutamine and milrinone is purely arbitrary based on the literature. And I would say that two decades ago, there was a cost issue involved where milrinone was five times the cost of dobutamine. Now there's about a 30% difference between the two, if that, if that. So cost isn't an issue. But there are a few other issues that we might want to consider. And one is if we're talking about beta blockers on board, we probably won't be using dobutamine, right? That's going to be less of an effective agent for us. We should be leaning towards milrinone in those cases. But my other argument, I think, is more real. And this is why I've kind of chosen dobutamine over milrinone in the past. And I'm typically using these agents on unstable patients, right? These are not the model of stability in our ICUs in cardiogenic shock, particularly if I already have them on a presser agent being levofed. You have to understand that both milrinone and dobutamine are inotropic agents, and they have little effect on blood pressure. If they do, it will be small, either small increases or small decreases. And the bigger issue with stability to me is half-life. And so the milrinone half-life is two to four hours. And so I don't have that if the patient's unstable. And again, we're not talking about presser per se, but we are talking about cardiac output. Where it may play a bigger role is if my inotropic agent is causing a lethal dysrhythmic event. In that case, or if I think that case is greater likelihood, I may want to consider dobutamine because I can turn that off and within two to three minutes, it's gone. It's not there anymore. And so in those patients who have either dysrhythmic events or arrhythmias or have gross instability, I might choose dobutamine over milrinone in those patients. The paper does nothing to change my opinion on those things other than say that milrinone looks, hey, at least equivalent to dobutamine for these outcome measures. So it makes me feel better about it. I don't have to be worried about cost anymore, but I do need to be cognizant of whether the patient's on beta blocker and whether there's an instability factor and whether my agent may be adding to that instability. And if so, I'm going to go with something with a shorter half-life. That's an outstanding, real world, very practical pearl, Peter. Outstanding. 
Well, gentlemen, as usual, as every podcast, you have provided us with expert insight, analysis, and your thoughts. And I think that really helps inform us as we have this particular patient population at the bedside. Granted, it's not the most common type of shock that we're seeing day in and day out, whether it be in the ICU or in the ED, but they do form a reasonable component. And probably, I don't know, John, if you would say that we're probably missing the opportunity and unrecognizing or not recognizing probably more people that have a cardiogenic component to their shock. And so I think that there's room for improvement and identification there. But having said that, this is one of these bigger articles that has been put out in 2021. And we certainly hope to get all of those to you throughout the course of the year, as we have been doing in terms of late breaking hot off the press studies that do impact our care, regardless of our practice setting. And so I think with that, let's bring this discussion to a close. We are right on time here at just a little under 30 minutes. My thanks to the three of you for this very helpful discussion. Really, really great job. And our thanks to all of you as we continue to fight on together in terms of COVID. There are some regions, as you heard, from the West Coast to New Orleans to Philadelphia and even to Baltimore, where things may be quieting down, but that's not the case for other regions across the U.S., across the globe that have markedly increased incidence of COVID and those locations, and in some cases here in the States, are implementing crisis standards of care. So we continue to be with you, with all, and Once again, your daily dedication to showing up and taking care of these and all of our patients continues to be inspiring to the four of us. So our thanks, and we will look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.